Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. So glad you're joining us and giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do on this program, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that really matter, get good information so that we can properly discern the times we live in, and we never take for granted that you do that for us. Thank you so very much. I want to start out talking about leadership. We talk about leadership a lot on this program. If you're going to follow politics and you're going to follow the culture, you got to talk about leadership. Everything, to put my, you know, Mr. Donaldson voice, my father, not me, everything rises and follows on leadership. Doesn't matter if it's your, you know, social group. Doesn't matter if it's your gaming group. Doesn't matter if it's your church or place or worship, your civic organization, schools, homes, families, the country, the world. Everything rises and falls on leadership. If there's chaos, if there's discord, If there's problems, without exception, you can go back far enough and you will find that there was a leadership problem that preceded that chaos and problems. I'm applying this to what we're seeing in Congress. I know we've been talking about this a lot, but it's important. What we're seeing in Congress is a leadership problem. This tidbit from Punchbowl News, and I've been leaning on them a lot on a lot of this coverage. They're excellent. Their newsletter is free. Make sure you go sign up for Punchbowl News. Follow their people like Jake Sherman. Listen to this from Punchbowl News this morning. Whoever wins this position for Speaker of the House for the GOP is going to be in a no-win position. Listen to this from Punchbowl News. The next speaker will be the conference's fourth choice, Plan D, if you will. This is from Punchbowl News I'm reading. This comes after the conference booted Kevin McCarthy, rejected Majority Leader Steve Scalise, and embarrassed Jim Jordan on the House floor. Nothing like being the fourth pick of a job. And oh, by the way, whoever wins this position will outrank Scalise, who, by all accounts, is still stung by the fact he didn't even get a roll call vote on the floor. They also have to manage Jordan, the most powerful House committee chair in decades, and another failed speaker hopeful. And also, the next speaker will become part of a power structure in Washington steeped in experience. Joe Biden, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries have a combined 140 years of Washington service. That statistic doesn't phase you? How about this one? The average tenure in Congress of the other three party leaders is 35 years. The longest-serving House Republican is Pete Session with 26 years, and he's on an extreme long shot. And the top four candidates, Whip Tom Emmers, Mike Johnson, Kevin Hearn, and Byron Donalds, they have a combined 26 years of congressional experience, and Donald's is only on his second term. The first task as a new speaker will be to go up against Biden, Schumer, McConnell, and Jeffries over government funding, which expires on November 15th. 
he'll have to convince House Republicans that they can't win this showdown and should pass another short-term government funding deal. If the House Republicans don't, the new speaker will immediately preside over a shutdown and could be looking at the end of his tenure. It's hugely important debates over funding for Ukraine and Israel, a farm bill, and reauthorization of the FAA. You know, keep the planes flying, kind of an important thing. And it goes on to break down all this, but why is that important? There's something very obvious going on in the Republican Party. And not that our Democrat friends don't do this, but, you know, when they're in charge, we'll bash them for it right now. The Republicans are in the hot seat. Look at who they put up. They put up Steve Scalise, who's been in leadership for a long time, who has a personal story that Republicans should be able to get behind. He was shot during the congressional baseball game shooting. He's dealing with cancer right now. He's been in leadership for a long time. He's an effective GOP legislature if you're into GOP legislating. But he got tanked by machinations inside the party. So now he's a little bitter. The people that tanked Scalise tried to run Jim Jordan, who, as we heard over and over again, has never actually passed a piece of legislation the entire time he's been in there that he's sponsored. And I know Kevin McCarthy stood on the floor and said, well, he passed this, 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 and that. No, he, he, he hasn't, folks. He might have helped. Jim Jordan is somebody who exists on the dais on hearings and on you know, TV, and he does TV hits, and he's really good on talk radio. He's a big media personality. He's a big committee chair. He wants to fight. He wants to do that stuff. Legislating is not his bag. It's why it was so amazing when he actually ran for speaker and tried to get it because the job of speaker is not actually the TV stuff. It's the backroom deals that everybody hates, and it's the deal-making that everybody hates, and it's the cutting negotiations that everybody hates to keep the Congress moving and to make things work. That's the opposite of what he's been his whole career, and that's why you saw people stand up and go, no, we're not doing this. The reason that experience thing is, and I bank, I bang on Congress all the time. I call them Congress critters. I think it's a cluster. I think it's a sideshow. I think most of the problems in our country actually start in Congress. When you look at the Supreme Court over the last six, seven years, people have been all over the Supreme Court. But a lot of the Supreme Court, if you actually read the rulings, are like some paraphrased version of Congress is supposed to deal with this. If Congress would deal with a lot of that, the Supreme Court wouldn't be in the mess it was. If Congress wasn't the mess it was in, our executive branch would be more reined in than it is. The regulatory state would be more reined in. Most of Congress is more interested in the politics of social media and news media where they get to be famous really fast now before they even get into office. Or they can be the gadfly members who don't really do much, but they're really big on social media, looking at you, Matt Gates, And they can't really do the job. That's what's the concern here. So you can say, well, all those octogenarians don't know what they're doing. There's some there's some validity to that accusation. Yeah, they haven't done a great job, but they actually know how to function the government, though. And what we're seeing now with this new batch of the GOP folks who are mostly there because of, you know, their alignment with Donald Trump and his base or how good they are at social media, or how good they are at the buzzwords of conservative or MAGA or whatever you want to call it, you're seeing a riff in this party now between the people who actually want to legislate and actually want to try to do some things and the people who just want to be really big on social media and spout their talking points. That's the divide, and that shows a lack of leadership. Those sorts of things have to be nipped in the bud, to quote the great you know, Barney on Andy Griffith. Don Knotts, rest in peace. You got to nip it in the bud ahead of time. 
there were many of us, and it's not because I'm so smart, it's just because I read and a lot of smart people told me this. You can go back and listen to the herd tells from the spring. When Kevin McCarthy got the job, we knew it was going to fail and it was going to end up like this. Now, we didn't know it was going to be this big of a mess. But because he, leadership-wise, he cut so many deals to get power, he was not going to be able to lead the caucus. He wasn't going to be able to control his raucous caucus we were joking about at the time. Leadership is mostly not fixing problems, although that is a style of leadership that is very to be treasured and needed in a lot of ways. You need firefighters. What you really need, though, in leadership in places like Congress is people who prevent problems. People on the right mocked Nancy Pelosi for her tenures, but she kept her caucus together and she didn't lose very many people on votes. And she usually got what she wanted because she knew how to wield the power handed her. For some reason, the GOP has decided that to wield power means to be really famous in right wing media and on social media and to get your face and name all over news media so you can fundraise personally. That's why the people like the Matt Gates of the world, after throwing the grenade and blowing up the Speaker of the House and making the mess that this thing was. No, it wasn't Democrats. It was Matt Gates and some of his buddies. Democrats do not have to vote for everything Republicans want. Could be, you know, let's be grown adults here. Republicans were in the opposite position. They would have done the exact same thing. But when Gates did that, he had already he already had social media managers putting out fundraiser emails the second he did it. When they give their floor speeches in Congress now, they have their social media managers putting out social media posts to fundraise off it the second they do it. They've decided that's been more important than pushing policy, than pushing legislation of pushing things through, garnering favor, jockeying for position. Now, there's always going to be that, but it's gotten out of control. And again, that's a leadership problem. Kevin McCarthy, the rest of the GOP. We shouldn't be surprised, though, a GOP that hasn't figured out what to do with Donald Trump and hasn't figured out how to deal with his most, uh, let's call them raucous followers that are now in Congress. You play patsies with these folks you play footsie with them, you placate them, you don't deal with people that are going to be problematic, looking at you, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now she's got power in the conference on trying to select a new person, an absolute wackadoo person who probably doesn't shouldn't even be in Congress at all. Republicans have nobody to blame for them, this but themselves, and it starts with leadership. They didn't have any leadership that didn't want anything other than just the power without thinking about welding it, or who should be in charge of it, or what they were going to do once they get it. The Republican Party of most of my lifetime is really good in opposition where they can just throw rocks at the people in charge and the Democrats and the libs and the left and them and blah, blah, blah. They do that stuff great. Every time they've gotten in power, they don't do too good. It's a leadership problem. And once they figure out what to do with this Trump situation, if they ever do, I doubt they will. They're just hoping it'll go away. They may want to sit down and go, you know what we need... We don't need more buzzwords. Might need a little bit of leadership. Good luck finding it with this current batch of Congress critters. More Hurt Tell right after this. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Let's go down to Louisiana. An absolutely horrific story. A 158-car pileup on Interstate 55 in Louisiana kills seven people, sent 25 more to the hospital. And when you look at the pictures, it looks like something out of a monster movie where Godzilla just destroys the freeway or like one of those Marvel movies where they're throwing cars around. That's what this looks like. There's even cars in the water. It's just insane looking. Um these things are scary. What happened was there was a big fog bank basically that rolled in. Everybody's on the interstate driving fast. Nobody can see anything and get a pile up. These happen sometimes. Fog, you get these in snowstorms out in the Midwest and in the Rockies sometimes. They are terrifying. Um, National Weather Service in New Orleans, reading from the Washington Post here, said the area had been affected by a super fog created by smoke from wildfires mixing with a dense fog. State police said rescuers we're continuing to search the crash site located in St. John, the Baptist Parish. Now, it's possible the death toll might still rise, although most people are accounted for. Part of the scene caught fire shortly after the initial accident. One large truck carrying a hazardous liquid was being offloaded because of the compromised tank and trailer. Police added images taken at the event showed scorched, mangled cars piled on top of each other. 158 cars involved in this accident. Uh, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards called for prayers and encouraged residents in the affected areas to take extreme caution when traveling. And Rep. Roy Carter, a Democrat from Louisiana, said he was devastated to hear and described it as truly heartbreaking. You have to see the video of this. You can't see a few feet in front of you, and these cars are just slam piled on top of each other. I've actually been involved in one of these. We weren't in the wreck, but we were in the first line of cars that stopped just short of a wreck on Fancy Gap in Virginia. I-77, the big steep grade at Fancy Gap, goes up from the North Carolina border on up to Withful. Um, Easter Sunday morning, 2013, uh, three people died, 20 people hospitalized, a 100-car pileup. Me and my daughter were actually right there. The last row of the wrecked cars were right in front of us. We weren't in the wreck, but they actually took us and put us in a hotel overnight because the road was closed. It took them hours to clean it, so they just took everybody out of their cars, put them in hotels, brought them back. Um, and we finally were able to get going the following morning. Um, scary stuff when you're on a mountain like that and there's, you know, there's just nowhere to go because it's guardrails and steep ravines on both sides. And you get what happened in that case. Cars got down in one of the medium places. Another car actually came down right on top of it and killed three people. There were 20 some people hospitalized out of that wreck. So this terrible thing in Louisiana, watch this news. If the, I just drove back from Atlanta. I was talking to my, you know, what we were driving back this stuff there's you're never going to lose any points for being a few minutes later than you thought you're going to be you're really not going to make up that much time just slow down be careful these things are horrific you have very little control of them other than slowing down and being careful got to be safe out there folks so horrific story we'll link to the pictures you can check them out slow down out there following distance if you got the adaptive cruise control like my car does Set it a little wider. It doesn't hurt you to be back further. Even if people are going to swerve in and think you ain't close enough, let them do that and back up even more. Get there safe, folks. All the rest of this will wait. Your safety is way more important. More Hurtel right after this. 
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is a topic that I've been wanting to get into on this program for a long time. It's just a matter of trying to find the right entry point because everybody's met that person. They get super passionate about something that's really, really important and they blast you with the passion and you're like, okay, that's just, I don't want to do that with this because it's way too important. And yes, this is West Virginia we're going to talk about, but this has applicable principles and problems that will go to any state you want to find anywhere. Kelly Caseman's with me. She's from Think Kids, West Virginia. We're going to talk about the CPS system in West Virginia, a big problem for a long time. Kelly, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. One of our core pro principles on this program is Things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. How do we get below the noise and the headlines and find out what's going on? CPS, DHHR, which runs CPS in the state of West Virginia. This is not a one headline, three headline, one year. This is decades of bad management, of unaccountability, of not having transparency. There's bureaucratic problems, there's legal problems. This has been a mess for a very long time. We need to frame this as that first and not just go trying to fix one problem at a time, don't we? We do. You know, um, we in many ways should have seen this coming. I, you know, we're um, a state with high poverty. We're a state with, you know, high prevalence of diseases of despair. And then we had the opioid epidemic unfold. And when that happened, we saw just a surge of kids entering Child Protective Services or CPS. And um, we didn't respond quickly and we still are kind of chasing our tails, trying to find a way to address the number of kids um, who are in uh, unsafe situations. And uh, it has exploded. And, you know, for the last couple of years, our state legislature has attempted to respond to it, but it's been very piecemeal. It's been with very specific, small legislation that's not going to get us where we need to go. Yeah, and anecdotally, I remember being home a couple of years ago for a funeral and I was sitting with somebody I grew up with who's now a judge in, you know, southern West Virginia. And he, he just looked at me and went, first case is the dad and drugs. The next case is the mom and the drugs. And then the third case is what do I do with the kids? And he just looks at you like, what am I supposed to do? We're going to do a lot of beating up on the system here. And it deserves some beating up on, but there's a lot of people in the system. The system's made up of people. There's a lot of people trying to do their best. There's a lot of people that aren't doing their jobs right. How do we humanize things like the system, the state, CPS? That's just a big faceless bureaucracy, right? We have a hum human problem here, right? Where we just don't humanize this enough and get to it on that level. Is that a fair way to put this? I completely agree. I think that um, the way this narrative has unfolded in the public discourse has been very much on the system and not on the families. And um, I, I think that is primarily because we, you know, there are certain reasons why you don't share the traumatic experiences that kids have, right? So a number of people who don't work in these systems don't really understand what's going on with these kids. And so when you have uh, like a story that kind of has brought it to the prominence now of, of um, a couple of kids who were found living in a, um, you know, and essentially in a barn with no running water and a bathroom deprived of basic necessities, um, people start to get a taste of what's really kind of the extreme of what's going on here. And then we, because of, of you know, um, confidentiality, you don't interview the kids, you don't speak to the kids. And then 
the the uh, focus really goes on broken systems, which uh, what we're talking about today is child protective services. But we're seeing because of the drug epidemic, we're seeing a lot of broken systems, public education, healthcare, juvenile justice system, and as you just re uh, referenced, the court system. And so instead of us looking at um, the people who are trying to do this work on the ground level, we're not interviewing them, we're not talking to them, you know, the, the system doesn't want their CPS workers doing interviews, for example. So it's very hard to articulate on the ground level, what needs to happen to ensure that these kids are safe. And so the system itself is very self-protective. And I think that's probably the first step that needs to happen is instead of us saying, well, you know, shrugging and saying the system is doing its best, there's nothing we can do about the prevalence of, of addiction. We need to be saying what we're doing isn't working. And so we need to pivot and look at a better, a better strategic plan. Yeah, Kelly Caseman, thank kids joining us. Here, you just mentioned it, the feeders to the system is something that we can address pretty easily because uh, most people have had some kind of contact with those feeders. You can't use a judicial system to fix the education system, but that's what happens because we're not dealing with the educational issues. The legislature can't fix parenting, although it likes to think it can and they run on that, but they really can't. The feeder problems, you just mentioned it, traumatized kids do traumatized things. You have an opioid epidemic. Well, if you traumatize a bunch of kids, you've increased their chances of having opioid epidemic. You've had increased their chances of winding up in the judicial system. How do we deal about the feeders to the system, the broken homes, things like that? Because you can't just say the system because you've got these stats and we've been looking at them. The CPS is chronically understaffed. They're chronically underpaid. It's a really, really hard job for the caseworker level. The feeder system is where this needs to be attacked, but that's the thing that people seem to want to deal with the least because that's the messy end of this. I completely agree. I think that we have uh, narrowed our focus too closely on the systems. If you focus on the system too much, all you're gonna do is create a bigger system. So we do more need more CPS workers, but more importantly, we need to find ways to keep kids and families from being introduced to these systems in the first place. So you want to keep these kids out of the courts. You want to keep them out of CPS. You want to keep them out of foster care. And so we really need to be focusing on prevention. We need to be focusing on, um, on parent engagement on that local level. You know, I think that you would agree. I, you know, you grew up, you're born and raised West Virginia, as am I. And there was a time when there, I, a uh, when I was growing up that um, communities were more tightly engaged. So, you know, I always say when I got in trouble in town, by the time I got home, um, somebody had called my parents and told them what I was up to. Now we have kids who are incredibly isolated. And um, I think that one of the things that we need to do, particularly with opioid settlement funding, is to funnel that money and ensure that it makes it to the community level and is specific for kids. So they have that one trusted adult that they can talk to. I think that's a great place to start. Yeah, Kelly Caseman joining us. You mentioned the school system. We now have problems with abuse in the school system, though. We have this terrible story of the, the teacher duct taping children. Look, my mom was a special educator. Both my parents were career educators in West Virginia, retired teachers. My mom was a special educator <laughs> starting in the late 60s. They were the pioneers of this stuff, the stuff they had to go through just to get a classroom space. 
the education system is supposed to be the safe place for children, especially children coming from bad homes. That's supposed to be where they can get a decent meal and some attention and some love and whatever. But we can't even get that part of the right. So much of the reporting system is supposed to go through the education system because they see those kids more than just about anybody else, especially school-aged children. The education component and their relationship with the CPS system, that's a broken relationship on a couple of levels, and that's a force multiplier to the bad in this, both the CPS system and the education system, isn't it? It is. You know, a couple of years ago, we held a, um, uh, a focus group with uh, school staff, school-based health center staff, and CPS workers, and it was clear to me, and this was just in one county, and as you know, in West Virginia, everything really happens on the county level when it comes to uh, public education. And so we were trying to find a way to better communicate between CPS and school staff and the healthcare staff, and there was a lot of animosity there. One of the recommendations we make at Think Kids to try and address child maltreatment is that we really need, um, on the governor's level, a governor cabinet staffer who oversees the, you know, develops a strategic plan and oversees child maltreatment. So there can be someone overseeing all these systems and can force collaboration. And so this animosity between CPS and school staff on the local level, um, somebody has to say, you know, enough. You you have to collaborate for the sake of the kids. And when that doesn't happen, um, you'll hear many teachers say, I called CPS repeatedly and no one ever gets back to me. And that should just, that should be unacceptable. You know, that is a problem that we've, we've seen bubbling up for many years now and that definitely needs addressed. And let's be honest here. The reason there's animosity is because those systems feel like they're fighting over funding. So it becomes a funding and a bureaucratic fight instead of, hey, if the education system's broken, that makes the CPS system worse. And if the CPS system's broken, that makes the education system worse. How do we have that conversation? Because when you're talking policy and trying to get the people focused back into policy, which is a lot of the core issue with something like CPS, it just always goes to funding instead of, hey, preventative funding is always cheaper than fix it later funding. And if they're not working together and fighting over the funding on the front end, these kids have no chance. The teachers have no chance. The CPS workers have no chance. That's the conversation we really need to be having because that's a practical, fixable thing that you could fix legislatively or with regulatory action. But we don't get to that conversation because everybody's fighting over the money. Right. That's just the honest truth. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think that um, that's one of the reasons we need somebody in the governor's cabinet, because we have a finite uh, amount of resources in this state. And we have all of these systems uh, vying for funding when they go to the state legislature. So almost every year, whether it be um, kinship care, foster care, CPS, uh, their leadership goes to the uh, legislature and says, you know, we're trying, here, here are our problems, and it can be fixed with more money. We just don't have enough money to give to every system. What they need to be doing is collaborating and pooling their resources together. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. So um, we have given, uh, the legislature has allocated more and more funding to schools for counselors, for psychologists, very important, but you and I both know that uh, enrollment is down 
uh, in our schools in West Virginia because we're losing population, particularly younger people. And as that money goes, as the population goes down, money goes down, and then um, the first to go are those support staffers. And so it makes much more sense to have a state uh, school policy to ensure that there are referrals to the healthcare system if a child needs help. Every child should have an annual well-child exam, and that is a perfect place to, uh, when the child is examined to see if there are, you know, signs of abuse. But a number of our kids aren't even making it to annual well-child exams. And so there is there are plenty of ways that our systems could be collaborating that would make the funding more effective. But they have to be collaborating in order for that to happen. And that's not happening, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, to the degree we need in this state. Kelly Caseman joining us, thinkkidswestvirginia.org. She also wrote an op-ed that we're going to link to in the Substack notes. Make sure you read that whole piece. One thing you're talking about there is, and what's missing on some of this, and you've been talking about this in social media and your writing, is there's a big accountability problem here because we, we, we know the hard way. Money alone doesn't fix it, doesn't fix education, doesn't fix poverty, doesn't fix CPS, because you got to have accountability where the money goes and did it get used for what it was supposed to get used for. The DHHR, and I know it's getting to change now because it's getting to, we're going to make it a three-headed monster instead of one-headed monster. We'll see if that makes any difference. But there has been an accountability issue for a long, long time, not just on, well, we have privacy of the kids. We get that, how the upper-ups do things, how the supervision's done things, how the case management is done. You've had good case managers just throw up their hands like, I just can't do my job effectively and you can't get good people into those jobs like you really need them. There's a huge accountability part. People, we need to understand, CPS, you know, we don't think of it like the DMV, but this is the DMV except it's in charge of kids' health care. It's still a bureaucracy. We have to have some accountability here and that's a huge problem. Yeah, it's it's a problem on on a number of levels. So as I'm sure you know, we have a um, a relationship with the Department of Justice that in 2015 they um, they wrote a letter to then Governor Tomlin saying that we were non-compliant with the um, ADA because we had too many kids going out of state to access mental health services that was directly correlated with CPS. And so we have that case that is still ongoing. We have a class action lawsuit of kids who have aged out of the foster care system. And so there are many things at play that make our state system less willing to um, share that uh share that data that we need to be transparent, to make it more of a collaborative effort to ensure that these kids aren't falling through, you know, the gaping holes in our safety net. What are the holes in the safety net? Because I say that all the time too, it's like, well, kids fall through the cracks. Well, the cracks aren't artificial cracks. They're things that didn't get taken care of that should have gotten done. So what are the cracks? Because people, again, you know, they'll just go, well, funding and there's not enough workers. Okay, we all know that. 
what are the other problems though besides just the communication and the lack of services you know why doesn't calhoun county have certain services that berkeley county has or canal county has and gilmer doesn't there's a lot of levels to those cracks and they're not all the same for all 55 counties or for the whole state or for that matter for the whole country are they no, I, I think one of the biggest problems that we have in the state is that um, we know that there are gaps in the safety net and we have not spent time trying to find where those gaps are and prioritize them. So some counties, Fayette County, for example, um, has a variety of different services, uh, preventive services, for example, uh, that are crucial to keeping kids from inter being introduced to the CPS system in the first place, while other counties don't have them. You know, we're one of those states that really prizes uh, local autonomy. And so we, but, you know, data collection is so much easier now, and we really should be looking at collecting data, making it more transparent as to where these gaps are, and then addressing them. And it, that goes back to, like I said, a state strategic plan. You've got to have all of the key players at the table, and you have to force collaboration. And instead of us trying to look at this problem as a one and done legislative session where a couple of laws are passed, you have to look at it as it being a comprehensive problem that's going to take years to fix. And so, you know, there's there's a foster care dashboard here in West Virginia where you can see the vacancies in uh, the CPS system. Um, but you also have to look at um, high turnover in those roles um, and how much training, you know, are we, are we, um, compromising on the training of staff just to get warm bodies, uh, you know, in those places. And so there's a lot that we could be doing collectively to address some of these issues with CPS. But the first thing that has to happen is that um, our state health department needs to be more transparent. And um, we need to collectively uh, agree that what we're doing as a state isn't working. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.
back. Kelly Caseman joining us. One of the tropes, of course, is, and you just mentioned it, it was people from the outside will go, well, of course it's West Virginia. It's the poverty or it's the opioid credit. Okay, we know there's a poverty problem in West Virginia. We noticed. Uh, we know there's an opioid. You just mentioned Fayette County. I went to church in Fayette County growing up. I know that area far too well. Uh, I know the problems in Fayette County. What you're speaking of, though, go, go to Berkeley County, which was in the news last week, um, in the legislature for that matter. The backlog of cases in Berkeley County, this is the second largest county in the state. It's one of the more affluent ones. This is the D.C. Exburbs, Martinsburg area for people that aren't familiar. This is not southern West Virginia coal fields, Christmas and Appalachia stuff. This is where they had to put in zoning laws to not grow so fast because they had double digit growth. And they can't get this right. What does that say about the whole of state approach you're saying is like, yeah, sure, Fayette County's having problems. McDowell County's having problems. The classic coal field counties. But Berkeley County, that's supposed to be the superstar future of the state. They can't get this right either. And you have this judge testifying in front of the legislator like we can't get this right, begging for help. If you actually listen to how he was saying it, and I appreciated him doing that, that shows you how deep and how broad the issue is to me. You know, Berkeley, you know. One of the the challenges they have, of course, is that people can make more money if they go to any of the states uh, around, you know, the eastern panhandle. But, you know, a point I want to make a few years ago, we so we've done a number of policy roundtables over the last 10 years. Ten years ago, if you look at the um, national child abuse and neglect data system uh, numbers for, say, 2011 to 2015, we didn't have, we weren't number one for child maltreatment. You know, we didn't have the highest rate of child victims. We didn't have the highest rate of first time victims. That really has happened as the opioid uh, crisis has unfolded. And so I think that we need to look at it in the context of this is, this goes hand in hand with the drug crisis. Um, And I think that we need to, use look at the opioid settlement funding on that community level and see how we can plug that funding in to address some of these issues but back to the point of um funding i you know i really worry that this kind of drumbeat for more funding more funding and that when there's no accountability um it is is just going to be throwing throwing funding at the wall to see what sticks when you don't have a plan in place. And that that is the biggest problem that we have is we're not collectively working for a, um, a plan and then to look at, at the evaluation. So we're not coming at this with real strategy. We're kind of coming at this with throwing our hands in the air and saying, you know, this is this is unwinnable unless we get more money. The money's not coming other than the opioid settlement funding. So where do we go from there? Kelly Caseman, you brought up the opioid. I. I've done media for the last few years since I've been publicly writing and doing media stuff. And I always bring up when people talk about the opioid crisis, like, yeah, the opioid crisis is terrible, but it also revealed a lot of cracks that were already there. You know, West Virginia state government has not been super functional for pretty much ever, frankly. Um, The opioid crisis revealed problems that were already there with poverty, with the declining demographics, with the state government, with the allocation of services, with, you know, some of the generational trauma in in West Virginia, especially places like the coal fields. How do we talk about that part of it as well? Because when you wrote your piece in West Virginia Watch, I subscribe, you should too. They do excellent work. 
I'm just looking at the stats you lay out here with this CPS state. West Virginia has the longest response time anyone in the country, three times national average. Highest rate of children who receive an investigative or alternative response, three times the national average. Highest rate of child victims in the count country at 17 per thousand children, which is twice the national. Like, and then you ask the questions, this is all Googleable. Why didn't anybody know it? Well, because we're numb to statistics, right? right. Put the personal face on that compared to what we were just talking about. Because if you're going to have a leadership approach and a people approach, it can't just be the stats because people's eyes just roll in the back of their heads, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, thousands of kids. How do you put a face on that stat to get back that empathy you were writing about in your piece that we've lost because it just kind of goes over our heads and we just don't hear it anymore? So I think one of the important things that we need to be doing is having community meetings and then allow people to come up and share their stories because we don't, unless it's this egregious story, like, you know, the Ray Lynn, um, uh, Ray Lee, I'm sorry, Browning story, you know, kind of these egregious stories that make national headlines. People don't know what's going on. Let me give you an example that I had referenced before. You know, we've held these round, round tables around the state and probably about seven years ago, five to seven years ago, we had a principal from Boone County who came up to the microphone and in tears and said, um, you know, she was an elementary school principal and she said, we're having kids who are coming into our school, starting kindergarten, who are not potty trained and are nonverbal. So um, she said, we don't have the services for them and we're probably going to pass them on to first grade because we know that there's a handful of kids who are gonna be coming in behind them. And she was begging for help. You know, that is powerful. That's the sort of thing that we need to hear as a community to force change on the state level. But those stories really stay squelched for a variety of reasons. I've heard from a number of people who have interacted with CPS who are afraid to share their stories publicly because they're afraid of retaliation from the system. So I think that that's one of the first things that we need to keep in check, and that is retaliation from the systems that are, you know, concerns of people knowing too many of these terrible stories. But if we don't get these stories out, you know, we have to have the the uh, community, the, you know, kind of the public will to force change. And so uh, it, it's not in our best interest to keep these stories quiet. We need to ensure that they're being shared on the community and state level. Yeah, Kelly Caseman joining us. Her piece is at West Virginia Watch. We're going to link to it. Make sure you read the entire piece. Also got a couple of links in there, like the maltreatment report for 2021. You'll want to read those stats for yourself. You hit on your piece when you're writing about this, and, and I think this is the really important thing is, you have to have a mixture of empathy. We're already really good at outrage, especially in the social media age, right? Like we can, we can put something real hot and heavy on top of that retweet or that Facebook post about how awful something is. We do outrage really good. We don't do really good about channeling outrage and empathy to actually getting things done. You mentioned having like meetings and things like that. Obviously you're in the policy world, so you do some things that maybe the average person can't. Social media is an amazing tool, though, and we don't use that for this. And it's not just showing those horror stories like the shed story. And now we have the pictures that just came out this morning of what that shed looked like. You can share that stuff, but you can also share like, hey, we're going to have this piece of legislation moving. Hey, we have this committee hearing. That's boring stuff. But if people can put it on their social media, that's an accessible piece of policy and advocacy that people can do, not just sharing that 
stuff that's sensationalized, but sharing the stuff that matters like, hey, here's this funding bill that's coming up. Hey, here's this CPS. Here's a good idea. How about a CPS worker that did a great job? We could maybe praise some of them. That'd probably do some good. Give us some stuff like that, just practical, that folks can just do even just from their phone that might make a bit of a difference here. Oh, wow. Gosh, they can do a number of things. I think that they can pressure, and this could be in letters, definitely social media, pressure uh, the uh, governor to create a, a cabinet role for, you know, an office of child health. And then you can pressure all of your state systems. Again, your healthcare system, talk to your pediatrician, um, your public ed, talk to your local superintendent, your local principal, your teachers, um, talk to CPS and foster care if you're connected with them, uh, your court system, talk to your local judges and say, you know, we've had enough. We have a problem with child maltreatment and more needs to be done. Um, I think that what we have right now is almost a shell game of people and, you know, policymakers not wanting to say that they have a responsibility to address this issue. We all have a responsibility to address this issue. So they can hold these people to the, you know, feet to the fire and say, what are you doing? How are you addressing it on a local level? How are you addressing it on the state level? And then um, instead of just blaming the systems, which you're exactly right, there are good people in it, but the systems are very slow and not reactive, um, to forcing at least a, a collective agreement that we as a state do not um, accept the rate of child maltreatment. We don't want to be known as, you know, the highest rate of child abuse in the country. And then uh, force at least a public dialogue. I think that's really where we need to start. You know, people don't have to become really savvy on policy issues. What they need to do is channel that anger to force people who are in the high places to respond and say, we will do something. We're certainly going to do more than what we're willing to do right now. joining us there's there's a lot of layers to this that we could get into but there's there's two that i want to highlight um not just policy wise but just kind of human interest wise we've got all the data in the world now two things that we have to address beyond just the school system and let's be honest policy wise a lot of people just think the schools are going to fix everything and they pop out an 18 year old fully functional adult that's not how that works right wellness and mental health for adolescents, those two things together, both their physical welfare, things like nutrition, healthcare, things like that. And we can have a debate about how you do healthcare and things like that. We can have a debate over school lunches and things like this. That healthcare and mental health component, when you're talking about the opioid crisis, when you're talking about child poverty, when you start talking about traumatized kids, there's no way you're gonna fix these problems unless you have a mental health care component to supplement what the school system and CPS or whoever else is trying to do anything. If we don't do something about adolescent mental health care, 
we're just going to kind of be throwing stuff up into the wind here. That's how I feel about it. I've had some experience with this. There's just not enough of it to go around. It's a rising problem, especially since the COVID where we decided we're just going to traumatize good, bad, or indifferent. Maybe we had to do some of it, but we traumatized a generation of kids. We just did. That's just the facts. Unless we do something with the mental health care component to go alongside and integrate it with education and these other programs, we're setting ourselves up for failure. I feel like. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. We um, at Think Kids have been working on this. Uh, you know, it's not it's not just a West Virginia problem. The lack of mental health care for for uh, the pediatric population, particularly adolescents, is a national problem. It's certainly one here in West Virginia. And again, we're not coming at it in a very strategic way. So there are places where public ed is working with the healthcare system, but you know. <laughs> We, we know that there are healthcare, uh, mental health care facilities in the state. We know that there's been an escalation of adolescents who have shown up in our emergency rooms over the past couple of years um, in mental health crises, and we don't have no place to send them. And so we really need to get better at assessing where the services are and if they're accessible. I mean, if even if a mental health care facility has a bed available, if a child needs it, but it's 50 miles away and the family lacks uh, transportation, how do you get the child there? You know, how do you ensure that the parents can visit the child? So, they, again, we, we, we know that there are gaps in that safety net. We don't know where they are. Um, and we should be having more conversations about this lack. We should be talking about the assessment, assessing services. We should be looking at full continuum of care. Um, and then we should be prioritizing and addressing them collectively, not just the system, but communities as well. Because, you know, Fayette, I'll go back to Fayette County. Different counties uh, have different priorities. And some counties really do prioritize. They they recognize that, you know, we our communities have deteriorated, deteriorated because of the drug epidemic. And they've tried to respond. And they've got some really good things going on, like the ICE model. I don't know if you know about that. But, you know, it's if, if that can be replicated, but the problem is we're not having these dialogues of what's working on that community level so they can be replicated in places around the state. And there's different ways to do it, too. You, you mentioned Fayette County's done this. Nicholas County did this about a year ago. They started trying to integrate um, drug rehab and the CPS system with the probationary system. And the idea was, well, you put your family back as part of your probationary system and as part of getting your rehab done. And it's very small numbers. I think they had like four, five, six people graduate the program. But when you got, you know, some of those 2000 people, five, six families, that's a, that's an impactful thing. So there's different things to do it, but there's got to be a will. And the biggest problem I've seen, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. There's not a lot of consistency on these. Pro you get a good program and it does OK for a year or two or a cycle two or a funding cycle usually is what ends up having legislation. How do we get consistency? I know this all goes back to leadership, whether it's political leadership, community leadership, but consistency is so important on all of these matters because when you're dealing with traumatized people, people with addiction issues, traumatized kids, the education system, that's a big problem. We don't have any consistency. You're right. So a number of these programs that pop up uh, for better or worse around the state are grant funded and um, you don't see any evaluation data from them. And then uh, 
the good ones, the bad ones, they fade away. And so I, I think we should, uh, one of the first steps we need to take is to ensure any program that's funded by the state that there's transparency in their evaluation data is um, shared online. And if a program isn't um, successful, then it should continue to be funded and successful programs should receive some seed funding to ensure that they uh, are sustained and replicated. And that is one of the big problems. Again, it goes back to leadership. You know, we, we have to ensure that our systems aren't self-protective and are more focused on uh, the kids and their needs. And so you do hear about great programs. Nobody's assessing them. Nobody knows, you know, why they fade away. And more of that data needs to be shared. Yeah, Kelly Caseman joining us. You ended your piece with something that I think is important. We are in an election season, which seems to be constant anymore. But you said every politician on the campaign trail should be asked, what are you going to do about child abuse and neglect victims? Um, CPS is a government program. That means our elected leaders are in charge of it, the legislator, the governor, whoever they appoint to do certain things. I think that's just the core truth of this, though, is elected leaders, they got a lot on their plate. This is one of those things they want to fix enough to just get it out of the way so that they don't have to deal with it. And I'm not even being mean about it. That's just the nature of the beast. This is something that we have to, we, the people, the normal folks, the non-elected folks, this is something we're just going to have to try to make noise on. And that's the only way you're really going to get to see any movement in it. I agree. It, you know, it's, it's, uh, really unfortunate but true that almost everybody running for uh, elected office will use kids as as a prop, right? So they say, you know, I care about the kids, I'm going to do something. But once they get into office and they see just how complex and how difficult it can be, uh, you know, getting stonewalled by systems, um, they give up. You know, I've had legislators say to me before, you know, I don't want to talk about foster care this year. I don't want to talk about CPS this year. We talked about it last year. We can't talk about it every year. Of course, you need to talk about it every year until the problem is fixed. You are, should be required to talk about it every year. And so we really do need more people, like I said, holding their feet to the fire. People do need to be taking to their social media and talking more about this, making an issue so it doesn't just bubble up every few years and people just seem surprised that it's happening. You know, if you if you do a Google search of West Virginia kids on a daily basis, you see that this isn't, you know, uh, um, an issue that happens once every few years. It's happening weekly. And so, you know, if, if that angers you, which it should anger everyone, you know, don't just get mad about it. Do something about it. Yeah. Kelly Caseman joining us. We're going to link to her think piece. I'm also going to link to those news reports we talked about. That'll all be in the Substack notes, hertel.substack.com. It'll also be on our social media. You just said it. So let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you. Let them know what Think West Virginia kids and others are doing about this thing. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on the program again, because we're going to keep talking about this very important issue because I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, so our website is thinkkidswv.org. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and we have a monthly newsletter. And we recap all uh, news articles around kids and uh, kids' health in West Virginia in it. And I highly recommend that you subscribe to that newsletter. And then you can get a really good picture of what's going on with kids' health around the state. Be important too as we get ready to go do another legislative session too. They'll be updating on that thing. They also have other stuff on there like child hunger, 
mental health, things like this. There's a great piece in there about uh, grandparents taking care of kids. We didn't have time to get into that, but it's a very important issue. Kelly Caseman, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it, ma'am. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's end on a good note. Let's go to our friend Keith Conrad. He does a newsletter um, that you need to sign up for. We will link to it. His news side quest has interesting tidbits in it. They have these burned up scrolls, but the insides are intact from Mount Vesuvius. Now, you recall things like Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius was a volcano. Roman times, somewhere around AD 79, it exploded, wiped out a whole bunch of people, killed a bunch of people, and also named a couple hundred Italian restaurants all across the world. These scrolls were burned, but because they were rolled up, only the outside burned and the insides are intact. So we go to newser.com here. Artificial intelligence and two students half a world apart have deciphered the first words from the ancient scrolls that were turned to charcoal and buried for nearly 2,000 years following the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Discovered in the 18th century in a luxury villa in some town I'm not going to try to pronounce, the Carbonized Scroll represent, quote, the only intact library to survive the Greco-Roman antiquity per nature. They're at the center of a million-dollar Vesuvius challenge, competition promising cash prizes for anyone who can read the charred remains. Scholars launched the challenge in March, releasing 3D X-ray images of the two rolled-up scrolls and three papyrus fragments, along with, quote, untrained artificial intelligence software that could be used to interpret the scans. On Friday, they got the first words, and it turned out they were the instructions to a game of the floor is lava. Get it? Vesuvius, volcano, lava. That's not my joke. That's Keith Conrad's joke, by the way. No, seriously, what they did find was, reading down through here on Thursday, Luke Ferreter, the computer science student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and Yosef Nader, a biorobotics grad student at the Free University of Berlin, were announced as the winners of the first letter prize. They separately identified the Greek word for purple, the color that represented wealth and status in ancient Rome. This is the first recovered text from one of these rolled-up scrolls. Stephen Person, a research advisor on the Vesuvius Challenge, tells people Ferreter, who's first to identify the word, wins 40000 while Nader, who trained the model to identify the shapes that might be the letters, will take home 10000 for the second place. 
not too bad of work for a big lump of charcoal. And it's amazing what science can do. Make sure you check out Keith's newsletter. We will subscribe to that. Good friend of the program. Good friend. Um, I love science stuff like this. They have this burned up scroll from 79 AD and they can try to read it and see what's in it. Just, there's been a lot of stuff. I'm kind of a history nerd. How much we've lost things like the library in Alexandria, how many papyrus scrolls and paper scrolls and parchments over the centuries that we've lost. And now it's something I've kind of been keeping an eye on what they call digital rot. Think of all the things you put on your phone that just disappears in the ether when you get a new phone. Something to think about how we're going to be remembered. We may be the most recorded, but least transcribed generation to ever walk the earth. Leave it to us to figure out a way to mess those two things up. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. Wherever you are, cross street or around the world, we hope you will join us again. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're following. Whatever the platform you're listening to calls it, leave a comment, leave a rating, share us on your social media. We sure appreciate it. It never costs you anything more than a click to do any of those things. Also lets those platforms know we're worth checking out. Make sure you're on the substack, herdtell.substack.com. Everything we do, our writing, every episode of Heard Tell, all the good talk, interview segment breakouts uh, will be on there. I've also done a few media appearances lately. Those are on there if you want to see what I look like when I dress up for TV. Um, things like that. Everything we do, direct to your inbox. Don't have to go hunting for it. Multiple options on how to listen inside each and every Substack posting, plus all the links to all the notes of everything we talk about on the program and all our great guests. So wherever you are across the street, or around the world. We hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.